This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. everyone. Welcome to Junior Doan's The Spark. I'm Junior Doan and thank you for joining me. My guest today is Andre Asseman, Distinguished Professor of Comparative Literature at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and Director of the Writers Institute. He is author of Out of Egypt, a memoir, and four novels, including Call Me By Your Name. Welcome, Andre. So you were born in Alexandria in Egypt and raised partially there and then took a notion, or your family did, of the change of the times and had to leave and eventually came to the United States and studied and got very impressive degrees. Do you have a sense of home or what is your sense of home? It's very hard to speak of home to somebody who's been displaced at least a couple of times. I was born in Egypt, then I moved to Italy thinking that was going to be my home. I didn't really want it to be my home, so I moved to France for a short while. That couldn't be my home, so eventually, thanks to the offices of Nantes, we came to the United States, and that became my home, de facto home. But where is my mind, my soul, my heart? That sort of moves around quite a bit. Under what conditions? It depends. On a nice summer day, like today, for example, I just need the beach to be near, be, near me. And in other words, I need something that might bring me back to Europe, to the Mediterranean. I hate the Atlantic, yeah, but, um, but I do like the Mediterranean. So on a day like today, when it's nice and beautiful weather, I always long for something more Mediterranean. But then it goes away. That feeling goes away and is replaced by another longing, uh, maybe a longing to be in New York, to be on the Upper West Side where I live. I have a date this afternoon with a student uh, in a cafe. And of course, I like the cafe across my home. And we're going to meet there. And then I'll, in the evening, I'll have a drink with my wife as we're cooking dinner. And uh, that will be fun, too. And I'll be totally a New Yorker at that point. So do you think there's a wave to life of longing and looking forward, having the experience and I think we're always like that. I think all humans are fundamentally unstable. 
and uh, not uh, sort of disjointed or unhinged a tiny bit. In other words, we don't really belong in one place. We don't have one profession. We're always dreaming of another life that might have been but never was and could still be. You know, that's that kind of fluctuation. We, we're all like that. We all want to go back to our parents if they're no longer with us. Um, and of course, we tell ourselves this is totally stupid. You don't want to be with your parents again, but you miss them. Then you have to take care of them. You say, no, I really don't miss them. Uh, and you, everything is a back and forth. In my case, it's more accented, more emphasized, because there has been so much displacement, career-wise, nation-wise, religion-wise as well. So uh, I'm more sensitive to it. And of course, it has become my sort of writerly capital, if you want. So in Call Me By Your Name, the four bathing suits and uh, four indicated four aspects of personality. Yes. Do you see that in yourself? Totally, and four is, not, is a small number. Uh, I mean, I think there are many more personalities in, in, in each of us, and in me in particular, I'm totally aware of it. There are parts of me that are very nice, and I mean, I was on the bus today. I was extremely nice to everybody. I was talking to people. I never talked to strangers. On the other hand, I'll be on an airplane, and please don't talk to me. Uh, so I have various parts. There are parts of me that really don't like the other part and won't talk to them. Uh, and there are parts of me that really like the other part and uh, long to be friends with another aspect of myself. So I, what I love about your books is the layered way of yeah. experiencing life. Uh, always fascinating and rarely found. Well, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, layering is exactly how I see things. Nothing is simple, and ultimately, and is, there's always a sense of irony, which is a way of saying, I've said this, now I'm going to take it back because I was just being ironic. Uh, but then I'm iron ironic people also, when they're taking back something that they've just suggested, are ultimately also reinforcing it. So there's, there's By keeping attention on it. Yes. So you said, I was being ironic, but I meant what I said. So you weren't being ironic. No, I guess I wasn't, but I'm being ironic now. Um, it, it's just perpetual. So maybe I need to be in a shrink's couch all the day, time. But f feeling is so much of life, at least for some people. Yes, yes. And, and I hate people who you. Uh, one of the reasons why I always say I hate using the word love when I write about love. Yeah. is because it's such a heavy-handed word. It, all, it just sucks the oxygen out of all the ambiguities that are in love, for example. But I, I never like to sort of give the reader a sense of something that's obvious because nothing about us, ev nothing is ever obvious. It's always shifting. Everything is always shifting. And, and uh, so you have to come up with a style of writing that is able to convey the shiftiness of our emotions and of our psychic life. Uh, so you can't have something, may I be forgiven for saying this, you can't write like Hemingway, which are sort of very sort of, sort of static sentences that have a subject, verb, and object and are very obvious. You can't do that when it comes to our rich emotional life. Hmm. Uh, you talk about readers being hiders. Mm. and maybe not liking themselves? Yes. I think that people who read, much less people who write, uh, are people who spend a lot of time by themselves. And uh, in other words, it's a way of saying, real life is a fantastic party. I wasn't invited today. <laughs> 
That's so sad. It's not sad at all. Uh, people who read like to be alone. Otherwise, they'd be in the park and they'd be sort of going in business and doing other things. People who read stay away from the activity of day-to-day -day life. I think that's true. I read that and I read a, a lot or yeah. less, but I've read since a child and partly it's a bridge to uh, worlds I don't know about. It's, an it's another dimension. And that evokes feelings or at least information or yeah. questions. And I, I really thought a long time, well, you know, is I hiding out? And I think that it, it could be said that, but it also could be said, maybe I don't know enough interesting people. <laughs> well, but if because around interesting people, I would talk to them forever. <laughs> well, I, I enjoy interesting people, but then after a while I find, okay, enough. Uh, I need to be by myself now. Um, my father used to be a very social man who had read everything, but he used to watch me read and he would say, okay, you've read all afternoon and it's now evening. Don't you have any friends? Don't you have anything to do besides reading? And I said, no, I don't. And of course, I knew there was something wrong in sort of staying cooped up in a room reading all the time. I mean, I was having a great time, but right. I knew there was other things. I mean, I wanted to date. I wanted to go out to parties, but people don't always in, didn't always invite me. So, and I didn't have many friends. So I think there is a correlation between the solitary life of the reader, of the writer, and the fact that um, social life, however inviting it is, yeah. is ultimately something that you kind of stay away from. Because it drains off Be your inner voice? No, because you prefer to be alone. I think we're all, we're all very autonomous. Um, it's, I'll give you an example. There are a lot of people who don't read, but they watch a lot of TV. Yes. And you always wonder, people who watch TV, seldom talk to one another as they're walking, watching TV. They'll make a couple of comments, but it's, yes. in other words, please don't interrupt me, I'm watching TV. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm with you, it's fun to be with you watching TV, but I like to watch TV. And it's something that is it, solitary. It's like two people sitting on a, on a sofa reading. You know, I thought about why do men like sports so much and watching TV and Separate from what I used to think about that, yeah. I also thought it was a chance, just like you're saying, for them to be quiet, you know, to rest, to just be. Yeah. I think, well, you go to sports are a way, of course, sports sometimes, I mean, basketball, is it's in a team. But it's a way of being, I, I used to call playing tennis, which I, I love. Um, Playing tennis is a way of being one with tennis. It doesn't matter who your partner is, or playing basketball, which I don't do, but it's being one with the idea of basketball. Uh, you become one with something else. Outside yourself. Outside of yourself. That's yeah. restful. Very. And it's, it's necessary. It's not just restful. It's people who are constantly chatting away and talking and doing so many social things, sometimes, you know, so they break down at some point. Because people need quiet. You need quiet, you need to be alone. And some people are terrified of being alone. Because? Don't know, I never quite figured that one out. Uh, I, I find I, it interesting. <laughs> to be alone? 
Yes, because no, I can ask any question I want to and follow it up or oh, whatever. It's, being alone is wonderful, but there are some people who are terrified of loneliness. And they'll make phone calls, they'll go online, they never, never want to be alone. Uh, they I basically that. have, they don't know how to be alone. When you feel lonely. Yeah, well that's different. Than um, loneliness? Loneliness is, is a terrible feeling. It means that I don't want to read, I don't want to watch TV, I don't want to write. I wish I had a friend. I wish I had someone I could love. Um, it was sort of my defining moments in, as a graduate student. I, was, uh, I wanted to be alone because I loved being alone. But there are moments when the loneliness becomes suffocating and you need to get out and you don't have a means of getting out. And so at that point, it becomes, you're not autonomous, you're lonely. How did you handle this yourself? Uh, I used to go to a coffee shop. And I, was, I would hang out in the coffee shop. And sometimes, occasionally, in the coffee shop, you end up speaking to people, which is a lot of fun. And then I made a very good friend. Um, and I wrote a book about our friendship called Harvard Square. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So then I found him invasive. And I couldn't stand him. Because he wanted more? Because he was just always there and always calling and always showing up uh, to the point where I said, you know, like, yeah, I like having you as a friend, but this is too much. Interesting. Yeah. How did he take it? Badly. He was, he was offended. And I don't blame him for being offended. Many of my friends feel offended when I sort of express or don't express a desire to not be friends. Not be friends not or be not friends. see each other not, as much? Not, no, actually stopping being friends. In other words, at some point I find that a particular person whom I was very close to and liked a lot and who liked me a lot, suddenly, enough. I want to be alone. Alone from him for a while? For quite a while. Like years? Uh, yeah. Or forever? Yeah, forever, yeah, because basically I've had enough of you. I've heard all your stories. Uh, you've, you've supplied what I needed for a while, and now I need to move on. I'll make other friends. What do you do in a marriage? And a marriage is different. How? No, because you're not only friends in a marriage. In a marriage, you're many, many things. Among others, you're partners. Yes. Your partners. A friendship is not partnership. It's something different. Uh, you're partners in our life together, and that's a different thing. You have children. You have a house. You have many, many interests in common, and it's good to be together. What did having children teach you? They were taught me very humbling lesson. <laughs> it, taught, it taught me what love was. If I thought I knew what love was, I didn't know it until I had children. And not because I loved them. That sort of came with the territory. I loved them a lot. But because I saw how they loved each other and how they loved me back. And I said, oh my god, I've never had this before. And it was a lesson in humility. I thought I knew everything. Gratitude. Yeah. Oh. The love of my children is an amazing thing. I never expected it, and it changed my life. It's amazing you had children. As a solitary person? Yes. Yes, it is. In fact, I never thought I would have children. Did your wife push it? None of my business. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't push it. it. It was the obvious thing. It was an obvious, we didn't even discuss it, but we wanted children. It was clear that our relationship needed children and would benefit from children, and we did. 
it, it gave us 10 years of a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> a lot. And we had three boys, so there was a lot of work. And I showed a video of our living room with the three children playing in, in madly in the living room. And I showed it to one of the kids, and he said, please turn this off. It's very disturbing. I said, what do you think it was for us? <laughs> How interesting. Yeah. But it changed you as a person, yes. I would guess. It made me a far better person. I don't know that others think I'm better, but I felt better. I'm, I'm richer as a human being. Does it change what you bring to your writing? No, I don't think so, because the person I am as a writer is totally different. It's, it's not a father. It's not a husband. It's a, it's, it's a totally sort of different sensibility. It's a person who basically goes back to his, in my case, I go back to my childhood and my adolescence, which were formative years. And in those years, I was alone, I was reading, and I was basically getting to understand the world as perceived through my voice. And I was understanding the world. I was trying to understand the world. Of course, I never succeeded, but what I understood is exactly what I write about. And as you transition to, from one book to another, yeah. how do you cleanse what you just completed or, or take on whatever you decide you, to you take on? You don't necessarily cleanse it, you augment it. It becomes, because otherwise you'd be going down as opposed to going up. I hear you. You, you want to write something that is probably, I think all writers have one story, or all thinkers have one idea. And it just morphs and becomes richer and richer and snowballs into something bigger if they know how to do it. And in my case, I write a memoir, then I write a novel, then I write another novel on top of that. And it becomes always more complicated, more layered, more richer, I think. Uh, sometimes we'll take a step down because somebody wants us to write an article. And suddenly we find ourselves saying, this article is kind of silly, but I have to do it because they wanted me to do it. And, and then you suddenly realize, but I'm making it more complicated than my previous book. Why am I doing this? Because you can't help yourself. You, you, you basically uh, add a new sort of annual ring, as trees do. You add yes. a new ring to something that you thought was kind of already done. Um, I remember. So what is the one idea that you're oh, looking no. at? It doesn't change. It's basically a, a sense of um, foreshadowed regret. It's, um, in other words, I'm in the future, but I'm in the future already anticipating the past. Um, peak moments don't stay peak. Yes, exactly. And so you know, as you're going to this wonderful dinner parties with wonderful people, you know that at some point you will say, why did I come to this party? And then you know that the next day you will say, we had a fantastic time at this party. Why don't they invite us again? And these are all sort of the ways I, I understand the world, as somebody who is already missing something that he didn't quite enjoy because he didn't know how to benefit from it. So I need a second take. And the second take is always disappointing. <laughs> you can, you, well, I, I'm, I'm processing that, but I, I think that's true. I, uh, I know it to be true. My yeah. late husband and I went to this f restaurant in the south of France. We were in love. It was so yeah. fabulous. Yeah. The day, the fish, everything. So I suggest we go back the next yeah. day. <laughs> it's the worst. The fish was off. It wasn't quite as bright. 
yeah, the atmosphere was not was wrong. And yeah, it's of just course. I said that taught me you yeah. have it and Enjoy be grateful yes, yeah. because you can't repeat it. Yeah, uh, well, it has I, to surprise you. Well, I was once sent to Paris to write an article, and I said I would write about a particular square in Paris. That's all I wanted to do, which was fine. And as I'm sort of walking in the square, we go to every single restaurant in that square. It's called Place des Vosges. And my wife says, aren't you taking notes? Aren't, did, you, did you notice this? I said, yeah, it's okay, fine. And I'm not taking notes. I'm, I'm kind of saying, why are we here? I don't want to write this article anyway. And then, of course, I couldn't start writing the article. Right. It was only when I got to New York that I realized, now I want to write the article. I'm writing it as if something was lost. In fact, I lost that square. And I wrote an article, which I think was pretty good. But it was written from loss. And so I understood something about myself. You only know things only when you're about to or you have already lost them. Interesting, interesting. Now, you are a specialist in comparative literature. Mm -hmm. What is the strains of the different literature in your current perception and writing? Do you draw? I mean, I've always wondered if people write for themselves, for the where, where they live, for another culture, another time. I think that we write because we have to write. And I will begin by saying that we write for ourselves, about ourselves, however disguised that ourselves is. But as you're writing, you also have the eyes of your editor staring <laughs> on the paper. Yeah. You have the eyes of the reviewers who are going to basically say, this was terrible. What, what made you think of doing this? And you have the eyes of the readership also. So you're not unaware of this. But you try to say, I have to say what I need to say that feels truthful to me. And I will say it. And then if I change my mind, I'll take it away. But I'll put it this, and that's, I mean, Call Me By Your Name is a prime example because there were entire scenes, entire moments in that book when I said, just write it, and then later we'll take it out. It's too embarrassing. And then the editor said, no, it stays. And so there's a whole famous scene of the peach. I was, I was just having fun as a writer. I wasn't going to publish this. But the editor said, it's a good scene. Let's keep it. And so you're always doing something for yourself. Later, you decide whether it can become public or not. So it's the way to know yourself better, writing? No, I don't think that you know yourself better as a writer. You twiddle. By writing. By writing? No, no. You, you just, you, you sort of, um, you extrapolate some identities that are hidden inside of you, and you bring them out to the fore. They may not be you. But they were you for that moment. Uh, because I don't think there is a you or a me. There's just various little me's that sort of crop up at various moments. Sometimes they share the same voice. They have the same look. They have the same irony, whatever. But fundamentally, they're all very different. And writing is a way of allowing them to sort of play and have their little playground. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's a sandbox. Writing is a sandbox. Some writers say, well, they let the characters speak for themselves. They were surprised by who. Yes. 
How does character. that work for you or not? No, they do. They do. I mean, the, in Call Me By Your Name, just to give you that example, uh, the characters said things to each other that I said, I can't believe they said this. How did this come about? What a wonderful idea. What a wonderful way of expressing their feelings. You know, I could never have said that. Of course I did, but it came through them on paper. The speech of the father. I could never have written that. You know? Interesting. But, but it, it was me who wrote it. Um, I would never say that. Uh, but obviously, I must have meant it when I was writing it. That's, it's a great ability to <coughs> infuse yourself into a different dimension. Yeah. Well, that's, I think they call that imagination. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Or sometimes it's just memory or imagination, and sometimes I can't even tell the difference between the two. So would movies or other books, how do you, how do you... Oh, it's all there. It's a conflation. You write a scene, and it sort of sparks a particular memory of a book, of a scene, or of a person you know, or of something that somebody told you, uh, and you steal shamelessly, constantly. What is this you steal? You steal the words they may have said. You may steal a similar scene in another book, or basically allow it to inspire you to go further, to take it farther than it went. Um, and you can do so many things by, by simply letting you know, anything come to you. Nothing comes out of your head only. It comes through memory as well. What, what do you... What do you have to say about death as a foreshadowed future of loss? It's a terrible thing. I, I don't accept death. I think that death is, is a huge, huge mistake. Uh, Continue. <laughs> it's a mistake. God didn't plan this thing well. It tells you that if you don't die, you'll get older and older and older and older until you basically look like a creep. Well, that is a mistake. It shouldn't be this way. Human beings are not like plants. We're, we're, we don't want to die. We don't have to die. Why should we die? So how would you design it? I have no idea. I'm not God. Well, why but why don't you imagine <laughs> it? No, I think we should go on. If we are happy in the state we are, then we should be happy forever until we get bored. And then we might change, or then maybe there's an option to turn off the lights. But by and large, when you think of people dying, they die with so much sorrow, so much re regret. I should have done this, I should have gone there, I should have whatever, so many things. And what an ugly thing to give us just 60 years, at least give us 120. Well, maybe you say the same thing after 120 years. Yes, and that's fine. 240 is a good number, too. You know, you, there's no need to die. It's a you think big... you're a different person now than you were in 30? No, I'm still the same jerk. But no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think... Yeah, no, I've acquired a few more layers of complicated stuff, but I'm still the same person. I think I have not developed since I was 14. What changed at 14 that you stopped developing? I think adolescence. Adolescence? <laughs> <laughs> Ruined you? No, I think uh, I'm an adolescent. I stayed an adolescent all my life. I, I mean, I look at myself sometimes and say, my God, there's not a part of you that's not white-haired. What happened? You feel as if you're a little boy. And I think that's a good place to be stuck, though. I think so, too. Because it's interest. Well, it, e eagerness. And then you, eagerness, you, yes. Eager for life. You want life. You like life. I do like life. Um, I don't proclaim it, but I, I, do, I do believe it. And I look for life. Uh, and I hate, I hate when I meet people and sense that 
there's no life in these people. That's a terrible feeling to have vis-a-vis -vis people. And uh, no, but I mean, in, in essence, I, I think that uh, we want to live forever in, 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 in good health too, not in sickness. Uh, sickness is a bad thing too. Thank you, Andre. We've learned a lot here. He lives his uh, writing life with a sense of foreshadowed regret. He recognizes a lot of personalities inside and that life is layers. We're looking for peak experiences, but they don't last. And he's seeking the uncertainties and the regrets and the opportunities that, that come into life. Basically, he's a man who had to adjust to various countries in his life and that's the way I think he lives life, adjustments. So in your life, go out and adjust to whatever it is and find those peak experience and cherish them because they don't last and be a good person. And please go out and do something kind for someone you know and someone you don't know and do it again every day. I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV.